Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. Abraham Lincoln is one of the most well-researched and written about people in the history of the United States. A new book adds to that research. And for more, here's producer Alex Hoyer. Abraham Lincoln was born in Kentucky, moved to Indiana when he was a boy, and uh, when he was 21 years old, he settled in Illinois. Illinois is, of course, known as the land of Lincoln, and it's also where Abraham Lincoln became the politician that fueled his rise to the presidency. Differ We Must is a new book that details how Lincoln navigated a divided country. Its author is longtime Morning Edition co-host Steve Inskeep, who joins me now. Steve Inskeep, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Hey, I'm glad to, glad to be here, glad to be talking to St. Louis. You share who Lincoln is as a politician by detailing 16 encounters he had with people who differed from him in some way. Now, during our conversation, I want to primarily focus on the encounters with people who were from or in the St. Louis area. But I first want to talk about Joshua Giddings, who was a congressman from Ohio. Now, the story you write about Giddings and Lincoln, this is in the 1840s, specifically relates to slavery. How so? Yeah, Giddings was an anti-slavery congressman in the years and decades before the Civil War. And even in a time when it was considered improper to talk about slavery in the House of Representatives. That is how controversial a topic it was. Southern states that practiced slavery demanded silence from representatives from northern states that had gradually abolished slavery in that period. And there was even a gag order for a number of years in the House preventing discussion of anti-slavery petitions. Joshua Giddings, though, was a troublemaker. I I label him a provocateur. Each of the 16 people that Lincoln meets has a label of that sort, like extremist or partisan uh, or editor, any number of different things. And this provocateur, Joshua Giddings, raised the subject of slavery in the House of Representatives and was censured by a vote of his colleagues for doing so. He then responded to that by resigning his seat, going home to Ohio, and resoundingly winning the special election to replace himself, coming back to Congress and being a thorn in the side of pro-slavery forces. And then in the late 1840s, he became a colleague of Abraham Lincoln, who got elected to Congress for a single term. And that's where my story picks this up because Lincoln was just getting started in his anti-slavery career, and one of the first concrete things that he did was to work with Joshua Giddings, this radical anti-slavery guy, on a bill to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia. They were politically very different. Lincoln was not a provocateur, was not somebody who uh, made everybody, all, all of his colleagues, despise him, as, they, as many did Joshua Giddings, but they worked together in a common cause. Now, this bill that never passed would have... Uh freed black people who were born from 1850 onwards. So that that did yeah. not pass. And before this, Lincoln had largely avoided even talking about slavery. He, he was more apt to campaign on tariffs, for example. Why did Lincoln avoid, up until this point, even the topic of slavery? 
Yeah, and I, we should be clear that it's not that he said nothing. When it came up in 1837, when he was a state legislator in Illinois, he issued a pretty clear statement saying that slavery was based on injustice and bad policy, essentially meaning it was unfair to the people who were oppressed and it was a dumb idea for everybody else. Um, and so his views of slavery had always been pretty consistent over the years. But you're right that he didn't talk about it much because he was in a state where it did not make sense to. There was very little that he felt he could do constitutionally about slavery. The states that practiced it claimed the right to do so under the Constitution. Uh, The states that did not practice it had not figured out very much that they could do about it. And so to him, it was just a divisive issue that threatened to split up his political party, the Whig Party which, by the way, was founded by a guy, Henry Clay, a famous Kentucky political leader, who was at least notionally opposed to slavery. He, he never was very effective against it, uh, and he talked in terms of colonization, sending people abroad once they had been freed, but he was at least notionally anti-slavery, and Lincoln's view was that position that might win an election is better than a pure anti-slavery position that just won't get a lot of votes. He was thinking about the electorate that had very mixed views on slavery, to say the least. Um, And the late 1840s was a moment where a variety of things motivated him to begin to turn actively against an institution that he'd always known was wrong. And your mention of Lincoln being in the Whig Party in Illinois, that was the minority party. Illinois was dominated by the the Democrats. Uh, And so from Lincoln's early political career, he was in the minority, so was uh, forced to find common ground. How did that play out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love this this aspect of, of Lincoln's story. And as we talk, I guess we should just note the reality that various people listening will have heard bits and pieces of this. I feel like we've all got a little bit of Lincoln in our heads. Mm-hmm. And as I've gone around talking about this book, I've heard that kind of response from people. Lincoln grew up poor. I, I Maybe you should say as a very ordinary family, since most people were poor. But on the frontier, it was a tragic and hard life for him. He got virtually no education. And then he moved to Illinois to a small village. And yeah, he had political ambitions from a very early age. And he got support in this area where the party he chose was in the minority from Democrats, the other party. There was this group of local toughs or bullies known as the Clary's Grove Boys who uh, uh, tended to beat up newcomers in town. And the head of the gang, Jack Armstrong, challenged Lincoln to a wrestling match. And there are all sorts of accounts of how the match went, but Lincoln seems at least to have won these guys' respect, and they ended up supporting him personally when he ran for office later, even though they differed with him politically, which turned out to be characteristic of a lot of his career that was to follow. Why do you think Lincoln was able to do that so adeptly? Well, there are simple reasons and complex reasons. The simple reasons are the fun ones, uh, because he, you know, he was a storyteller. He was entertaining. He was fun to be around, even though we know today that he often suffered from what he called melancholy and we would call depression. Uh, And his close friends certainly knew that, too. He was just a very entertaining guy. He was very friendly and he was very understanding um, of other people. But let's get a little deeper on that. He had empathy for other people, which is different from sympathy, but but I mean that he tried to understand the other person and what the other person was about, which allowed him to respond in the proper way. And he also would speak very, very 
carefully. Uh, we know him for his words, but he also had a lot of silences. He would fall silent sometimes and speak only in strategic ways. So he was often thinking about how he could bring somebody who was a little different than him over to, to his side. He was a very thoughtful guy about human nature. And these were people who were considered radicals at the time, who were abolitionists, and also people who uh, supported slavery as well. I yeah. want to move forward a little bit to the chapter about Owen Lovejoy from Alton. And Owen Lovejoy yeah. was a pastor and later a congressman. He was the older brother of Elijah Lovejoy, which uh, who I think gets more attention from history books. And as a reminder, Elijah Lovejoy uh, was murdered by a pro-slavery mob in uh, 1837 because he had uh, published an anti-slavery newspaper called the St. Louis Observer. But how does Elijah Lovejoy's brother Owen factor into this book? Yeah, and I just love that you're focusing on St. Louis area figures because as as we're talking, I'm just realizing there's so many, and I, I love St. Louis and have had a chance to write about it before. St. Louis was almost like a character in mm -hmm. my previous book, Imperfect Union. But anyway, o Owen Lovejoy was aware that his brother Elijah, of course, had been killed. He was present in the city of Alton, Illinois, when his brother was killed by a pro-slavery mob. And he swore himself to the abolitionist cause and spent the next 17 years or so running a church in Princeton, Illinois, and preaching against slavery in spite of the criticism that he faced for this as an extremist. And he ended up becoming um, one of the founders of the Illinois branch of this new political party, the Republican Party, in the 1850s, whose central uh, idea was opposition to slavery, opposition to the expansion of slavery. And Owen Lovejoy, in addition to helping to organize this party, tried to recruit Abraham Lincoln for it. Lincoln was in this other party. Lincoln was not sure that he wanted to be associated with extremists for some of the reasons that we said before, but he gradually decided that his old party was dying and the new one was uh, politically smart enough to succeed and that he could help it be so. In fact, Abraham Lincoln and Owen Lovejoy ended up collaborating over the next couple of years to shape what that party was. And here's another example where Lincoln is, I guess you'd say more moderate, or maybe we should say more pragmatic. Uh, I mean, he said his belief about slavery was the same as the radicals, but it's a question of what you could do about it. And there were these other people who were more radical, who wanted to defy the incredible web of laws that that supported slavery more directly, but Lincoln managed to collaborate with them. And this is the Republican Party established in 1854. The party that Lincoln had belonged to, the Whig Party, collapsed then because of the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, which had repealed the Missouri Compromise, basically reopening the question of slavery in the Western territories. And uh, uh, Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas, who was a Democrat, I want to get to him in just a moment. But Dude, you know your history. You're just like spinning this out. This is awesome. Please continue. Go on. <laughs> well, and I want to circle back to Lovejoy. To what extent did Lovejoy influence Lincoln? Oh, um, it seems clear to me that he played a role in recruiting Lincoln for the Republican Party. And he may have influenced Lincoln's tone somewhat. Um, I kind of love this story, even though it's a little hard to prove exactly what happened. They ended up both speaking 
uh, two of the main speakers. They were two of the three main speakers at the Republican state convention uh, that named Republican candidates for the big election year of 1856 in the state of, of Illinois. And they knew they had to have a unified message. There were these people who'd formed this party who'd come from a bunch of different parties, had a bunch of views on a lot of different issues, and had differences over how even to approach slavery, their main issue. But in the end, they had a unified message, which was very hard to do. And when you read the accounts, Owen Lovejoy, the radical, who had made his house a stop on the Underground Railroad and helped people to escape and openly defied the fugitive slave law, as it was called, gave a moderate-sounding speech saying that he opposed slavery but would do so within the framework of the Constitution, which meant that, for the moment, there were places he could not touch it in the South. And so he became more moderate, at least in tone. And Lincoln, uh, the more pragmatic guy, became more radical he seems to have given a super fired up speech as if he was influenced by some of the extreme news events of the moment and maybe by his friend Owen's tone as well. And he uh, gave this speech that was so extreme, that was so fiery and inspiring that it is said that the reporters and other people who normally would have taken notes of this speech forgot to take it down. They just stopped taking notes. And so it's known as Lincoln's lost speech, the speech that's so memorable no one remembers it. Um, but it was a moment when Republicans managed to come together as an anti-slavery party in the state of Illinois, which was tough ground for anti-slavery campaigners. And they managed to have a success in that that year's election. The guy that Lincoln had promoted for governor won the governor's race. And Owen Lovejoy became a member of Congress and and a close friend of Lincoln. They became closer and closer over time. These these two guys that, that, that weren't sure they could be on the same page at all at the beginning. And this lost speech, you point out in the book that it was lost, but uh, perhaps that was not a bad thing for Lincoln because he didn't want to necessarily have his words of what he yeah, said spread. Yeah, I mean, other speeches, Lincoln himself seems to have written them down and, and gotten the gotten the version out, but he did not do it there. And that's another reason that I think maybe it was more fired up even than Lincoln wanted to be. That's NPR Morning Edition co-host Steve Inskeep talking with producer Alex Hoyer about his new book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. We'll get back to more of their conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. Let's return to producer Alex Hoyer's conversation with Steve Inskeep about his new book on Abraham Lincoln called Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. So we're in the 1850s now, and this really leads into one of the most famous Lincoln topics, and that's the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858 between uh, Senator Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln. And this is where uh, I think it's my favorite chapter of the book, and that is uh, one that you have titled Nativist Joseph Gillespie. Uh, Gillespie was a lawyer from Edwardsville. Uh, tell us more about this encounter. Yeah, um, Gillespie was what we would call a nativist what they would call a know-nothing. He was an anti-immigrant politician. He had embraced these secret societies known as know-nothing groups, because if you asked a member about them, they'd say, I know nothing. And their goal was to keep foreigners out of politics, to keep foreigners out of office, and to the extent possible to prevent foreigners from voting um, for much longer than, than would be required of, of native-born people. And, and 
Gillespie was one of these people who thought that this was a really valuable thing to do. Um, Lincoln couldn't stand any of this. He said he'd rather live in Russia if the uh, nativists, if the know-nothings gained, gained power. But he ran for Senate in 1858 as the Republican nominee. Um, it was kind of complicated. The state legislature elected the senators. So what they did is they did an election for the state legislature. And Lincoln, who was politically very calculating, wrote down past election vote totals county by county by county across Illinois and realized that he needed a lot of votes out of the area where his friend Joseph Gillespie was a state senator and a big nativist leader. And so he went to this guy who he disagreed with about immigration and said, I need your support to get your voters, your backers to vote for me against slavery and tried this desperate moral straddle of not betraying his own principles, not pandering to these people by saying something he didn't believe about immigrants, but only reaching out to them on an anti-slavery platform. And that's what he, he desperately did. Why was Gillespie willing to help? I think because Gillespie also uh, opposed slavery. And that's really interesting to think about. Like if we think that these uh, know-nothings are uh, kind of despicable because of their distaste for foreigners, well, we can certainly be right about the position. Um, but people are complicated and have different views. And some people who had a problem with immigrants also had a problem with slavery. Some people who had a problem with slavery also were racist, by the way. I mean, there were all kinds of different viewpoints about slavery. But Gillespie had enough of a common ground with Lincoln that they were willing to and able to work together. And also we had a friendship with this guy, even though Lincoln couldn't stand it when he started ranting about immigrants. He'd been friends with Joseph Gillespie for 20 years. They were political friends. And so they supported each other. And speaking of friendships, uh, this same chapter contains a scene that is written vividly to me. And that is an interaction that he has with Gustav Kerner from Belleville, mm. Uh, Gustav Kerner was the former lieutenant governor in Illinois. A remarkable story. He was an immigrant from Germany who had who had fled, uh, and it's the seventh and final Lincoln Douglas debate, uh, mid October, Alton, Illinois, and uh, it's before the debate. Uh, Lincoln is in in a house. Gustav Kerner walks in, but is uh, ushered up to the top floor where uh, Mary Lincoln is. And this is because Lincoln likely didn't want to be seen with somebody who was an immigrant because he was trying to get the votes of people who were anti-immigrant. Tell us more about that. Yeah, it's an excruciating moment. And Kerner is an amazing character. Uh, and I have, uh, it's his account of this meeting that, we, that, that, that you just described. Um, Lincoln was trying to gain the votes of people who disapproved of immigrants, as we said. But his coalition also included immigrants, specifically German immigrants like Kerner, many of whom were opposed to slavery. And that uh, is part of a politician's somewhat uh, dark art, I suppose, is getting these people who were fundamentally opposed to each other's interests to see that they shared an interest in Lincoln's big issue, which was slavery. And Lincoln tried to give them all a reason why they should cast good votes against slavery, even if some of them had bad ideas about immigration. So Lincoln lost this election. He he did not uh, overcome Stephen Douglas. Stephen Douglas was reelected. But it was after this election that there was a small newspaper in Illinois that first suggested that 
Lincoln should run for president. And, and that was presumably because even though he was not, Lincoln was not able to attract enough support that he was able to get support from people who he differed with, which, which is the central thesis of, of the book. Yeah, and, and it just kind of shows how well Lincoln used the media, too. Um, daily newspapers were, were primarily a development of his lifetime. He was born in 1809, and at that time there were daily papers, but very, very few. They were mostly weekly or monthly or whatever they could publish. And so they became more frequent, and they were getting news faster by telegraph, and they were being delivered faster across the country by train. And so there was this accelerating mass media. And in 1858, they got a product, which was the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which people were really interested in. And papers across the country printed partial transcripts or whole transcripts of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And so people were following this one Senate race in Illinois, and people were also coming from outside the state to watch this Senate race. I, I have newspaper accounts of steamboat excursions from St. Louis um, across the river to the final debate in Alton. And there were other debates, like one up in, in Quincy, that I bet there were people from Missouri who went to that one. And there were, there were people from all over going to see these debates and reading about them in the paper. And this is one of many reasons that Lincoln appeared to be a presidential contender, at least a long-shot presidential contender, even though he didn't have a very long resume. I want to focus on just one chapter from the very beginning of the Civil War. Uh, one of those chapters is on Jesse Benton Fremont. Uh, she was the daughter of longtime Missouri Senator Thomas Hart Benton, who yeah. was married to John Fremont. And you could write an entire book about them, which you did a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, but I want to focus on the Fremont's time specifically in St. Louis. Again, this is the early part of the Civil War. Take us to the moment that draws Lincoln's ire as it relates yeah. to John Fremont. Yeah. Some people in St. Louis will know this history as well or better than, than I know it, of course. But at the beginning of the Civil War, John Charles Fremont volunteered for service. He had been a war hero. He was also a self-promoter, a salesman, and a great uh, self-salesman, that is, and a great Western explorer, an explorer of the American West. And so when he volunteered to serve in the army, Lincoln was happy to have him. Also because Fremont had been the first Republican presidential nominee, a failed nominee, so Lincoln was giving a high position to a necessary political ally. And Fremont took command of the West with his headquarters in St. Louis, and he took his closest advisor, his wife, Jesse Benton Fremont. And they set up uh, in a mansion uh, in St. Louis on Chateau Avenue, I believe. Am I saying that correctly? How's Shoto. it said? Shoto, Shoto, Shoto Avenue. Thank you very much. And they're, they're in this mansion and building up Union forces to defend Missouri, which was spectacularly divided. Um, I didn't really know a lot of this history, even with all I'd read about the Civil War, until I researched this period deeply. I did not realize that Missouri's governor went over to the other side mm -hmm. and declared there to be a Confederate state of Missouri and set up a pretender government after the loyal legislature deposed him. And there were, there were riots in St. Louis and there were battles all across Missouri. And uh, Fremont did not do well in the early weeks. And it was a slave state. And so he issued his own Emancipation Proclamation, which said, among other things, that uh, the slaves or enslaved laborers of disloyal people would be freed. And he began signing deeds of manumission, uh, emancipating individuals. Um, and Lincoln was upset with this. It was early in the war. 
Lincoln had not issued his own Emancipation Proclamation. That was way more than a, than a year away. And he was not ready to do it. He was not politically ready to do it. And he also thought it was his decision. It was a political decision, not for a general to make. Now, you mentioned there are 16 meetings here. Um, the confrontation here was not with John Fremont, but with an emissary he sent, Jesse. Jesse went a couple days on the train back to Washington, D.C. to argue with the president of the United States when the president of the United States said, take back or at least modify this order you've made of emancipation because I'm just not ready for that politically and it's not your decision. Rather than obey, Fremont uh, sent his wife. And I love the detail about... uh maybe it's a level of pettiness, but deservedly so, is that Lincoln had initially read about Fremont's emancipation in the newspaper. And uh, of course, Jesse had to go uh, back to St. Louis. And before he could get there, he uh, told the newspapers this this news. And so uh, the, the way that John C. Fremont may well have found out about it was oh, in the yeah. newspaper. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you think about that, like you, you, you read about that in modern day politics. And it's one of the many times that I feel that my day job uh, informed my study of history. Like if, if an official finds out about something in their department, reading it in the newspaper, they're really mad because somebody should have told them. Um, and you know that probably from your personal life or maybe your your work life. I mean, you would rather be informed of things mm-hmm. <laughs> that are surprising before they happen at work or in your family or any, any other place. And so, yeah, Lincoln, the president, learned about Fremont's really dramatic action by reading it in the papers, was not prepared for it. And uh, he does seem to have made sure that John Fremont would find out about Lincoln's action countermanding his the same way. And I think you astutely point out that that this was all about how Lincoln would decide the time, that, that yeah, Lincoln yeah, was a master was, of timing. Yeah, and, and we should think about this for a minute. I mean, um, John Charles Fremont morally was doing the right thing. He was freeing people. Um, it's hard to argue with, with that. But Lincoln argued that he needed to win the war. And in order to win the war, he had to act against slavery carefully in a certain way at the right time, and that it was his decision to to choose. You were writing this book during the January 6th insurrection a couple of years ago, and and you point out in the acknowledgments that uh, during that insurrection, someone carried a Confederate flag through the Capitol building, which is something that Confederates during the Civil War never achieved. What was it like to be writing this book at the time that you were writing it? Yeah, um, it made the work feel more and more important. Um, I hesitated to start on Lincoln at all because there have been thousands of Lincoln books and what could I add? Um, But I felt that having written a couple of other books about the 19th century, I might have a perspective that was useful. And then I felt that it wasn't solely a book about Lincoln. It was a book about differences and diversity. It was about all the different kinds of people who were present in America and how a bunch of them faced off with Lincoln in one way or another. And these 16 include, uh, as we've just been discussing, men and women, also people of color, uh, people from a lot of different classes and beliefs. And so I wanted to, to kind of bring them all together. And then because of the news that we're facing, I realized that the story is not just about difference, but about disagreement. And that was the hard thing, how Lincoln was going to deal with sharp disagreement on issues where people weren't just going to change their mind. 
And I want to be clear here, there are not a lot of scenes in this book where someone is suddenly converted to Lincoln's point of view or Lincoln is suddenly converted to the other person's point of view. But they sit across the table from each other and they see if they can work together. And if Lincoln can't figure out a way to work with the other person, he will still try to figure out a way to gain some advantage from the situation because he's a politician and that's what politicians do. You said that you wondered what you could add uh, to the story of Lincoln because he is one of the most researched and written about uh, people in in history. What is it that you hope this book adds to that history? I, well, I would hope that it does give a sense of the diversity of America, and I hope it also illuminates for people how Lincoln achieved what he did, how he rose uh, to national leadership, and how he uh, succeeded in national leadership. I had read an enormous amount, or I thought I had, about Lincoln before I did this. I mean, I've been into Lincoln ever since I was a kid growing up in Indiana, where he spent a lot of his youth, most of his youth. Um, and I'm not alone in that. I mean, lots of people are obsessed with Lincoln, have many Lincoln books around the house, or read Lincoln's speeches, which are beautiful. But I didn't truly feel that I understood how did he appeal to people. Like, just knowing that he's like a friendly, kind of backslapping guy didn't quite do it for me. And I gradually realized through my research here that Lincoln had a particular view of human nature. He thought it was straightforward. He thought that people acted out of self-interest. And so he needed to frame his arguments in a way that appealed to their self-interest, even as it appealed to some higher cause, which in his case turned out to be slavery. And he would frame his arguments about slavery in ways that, that white voters, which are the ones who had all the power, of course, could understand. And, and that was, once I understood that, I felt that I understood why he spoke the way that he did, why he talked about equality the way that he did, why he warned white voters that slavery would be bad for them, and why he later told white voters who were upset about the Emancipation Proclamation that equality was good for them because that proclamation came during the Civil War and black soldiers, having been freed from slavery, were fighting for the Union. And that was good even for someone who was prejudiced and fearful about, about what freedom would mean for them. Steve Inskeep is the author of the new book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. He's also the co-host of NPR's Morning Edition. Steve Inskeep, thanks so much for your time today. I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. That was NPR Morning Edition co-host Steve Inskeep talking with producer Alex Hoyer about his new book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. Today's episode was produced by our executive producer, Alex Hoyer. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.